My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. first scripture reading today comes from the book of Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be jumping around a little bit actually. We're reading Daniel chapter 9 verses 1 through 4 and then 17 through 19. Daniel chapter 9 starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius son of Xerxes, a Mede by descendant who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, I understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And so I turned to the Lord God, and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our prophets, our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Skipping now to verse 17. Now, O Lord, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Our second scripture reading for today comes from uh, Luke chapter 19. We're reading Luke 19 verses... um, 35 through 40. Luke chapter 19, verses 35 through 40. And then the disciples brought the colt to Jesus. And after throwing cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus upon it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all of the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop and to be quiet. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, then the very stones would cry out. It's the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to begin uh, today by uh, looking at a story from the book of Exodus, Exodus 34. And this is not any of our scripture readings for this week, so this is totally bonus. This story talks about the moment that God revealed God's name to Moses. And this is a huge scene in the Old Testament, the moment that God reveals himself as a particular and personal God and shows his nature and his character to the people whom he has chosen. It's very, very important. And so Exodus 34, starting in verse 4, says this, So Moses went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord God had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name Yahweh. And as he passed in front of Moses, he proclaimed, The Lord, Yahweh, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Let's take a quick pause. This all sounds pretty good so far, right? This even got some poster-worthy Bible verses, the kind of Bible verses that we would stitch on a pillow. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. 
It's beautiful, right? And oftentimes when I hear this story read or preached on, often we stop right there. Um, But the story continues and concludes with one more quality of this God who has just introduced himself to Moses. The Lord, Yahweh, is compassionate and gracious, maintains love to thousands, forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but it continues. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and to the fourth generation. Yeesh. Uh, It's a weird, disappointing ending there, isn't it? Uh, It's disappointing, I think, mostly because it doesn't make any sense to us. The guilty should be punished. Okay, we can probably get on board with that to some extent at the very least. But God punishes the children and the grandchildren for the sins of the parents to the third and to the fourth generation? Why in the world is that detail in there? That's such a crucial moment in the Old Testament, sitting among all of this other beautiful and much more palatable stuff like steadfast love and faithfulness. Because that's not fair, right? That's not just. Why should a child be punished for the sins of their father or for their grandfather? Uh, For that matter, why should the father be punished for the sins of the children? That's backwards. It's primitive. I sure wish this story would have ended just one verse earlier. And I start with this little scene from Exodus this morning because I think it's a great example of a certain kind of sin or a certain way of thinking about sin, guilt, and punishment that is just all over the place in the Bible. It might even be the Bible's primary way of thinking about sin. But initially, it just sounds utterly alien to us, strange, backwards even. And what this is, is this is a corporate or a collective understanding of sin and guilt. And in our final Lenten sermon, which is this sermon right here, next week is Easter, uh, Can't wait. Come to our Easter service, 11 a.m., Grifton, United Methodist Church on McRae Street. We will celebrate the resurrection together. I'm really looking forward to it. But this, and this week, is our final week of Lent. And during this time that we have together, we're going to think about this concept that sticks out to us as so strange from that story in Exodus 34, corporate sin, collective guilt. And this is probably going to be a harder for one, harder one, a tougher one. You're going to have to really stretch yourself, uh, think long and hard, maybe even go somewhere that you're not immediately comfortable because understanding this concept does not come easily or intuitively to us. And there's good reason for that. We live in what might be the most individualistic culture in the history of humanity. In other words, almost every other culture and society that existed before us would have had an easier time understanding this concept of collective sin and guilt. The the rise of the individual man and woman as as a sort of totally disconnected actor and moral agent who makes decisions that are completely autonomous, totally independent of context and community, past and future, that was an almost completely foreign idea until the mid to late 1700s when some European philosophers sparked what is uh, most often referred to as the Enlightenment, a philosophical revolution that, among many other things, put a lot of emphasis on the individual. And America, our country, uh, was founded on the basis of this philosophical movement. If you've heard of guys like John Locke, Adam Smith, Thomas Hobbes, these were Enlightenment thinkers who profoundly influenced more familiar names like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. Our founding fathers wove this emphasis on the individual into the very fabric of our nation. And we can still see that clearly um, in something like the, the cultural mythos that we have, so to speak, the stories that we like to tell as an American, right? We've got the cowboy, a capable, independent guy on a white horse tames the entire West without anyone's help, just his own smarts. The the business tycoon who started from nothing, but on the, the back of just his or her own hard work and ingenuity is able to become really successful and powerful. Even the, even the superhero, to a certain extent, fits this archetype. We love stories about strong, independent individuals who rise or fall on their own merits as a result of their own actions and choices. Now, 
I want to say on the front end, in a lot of ways, this individualism that is so pervasive in America is is awesome. Uh, the rights and the dignity of an individual were a crucial development in human civilization. And in many ways, the defense of the individual is a is a wonderful thing about our country. The Bill of Rights is based on this idea, the idea that as an individual, I have certain privileges, rights that cannot be taken away, even by a majority. Everyone else in the country could get together and vote that I, Caleb Hunt, can no longer speak in public. I can never preach again. Um, and it wouldn't matter because I'm an individual that has the right to the freedom of speech. It's not up for a vote. Uh, and some of these great things about individualism actually have their roots in the Bible. The right to life, the individual's right to life, has its roots in the Imago Dei, the statement from Genesis that says that all humanity, which includes every individual human, regardless of status, all of humanity bears the image of the Creator and is therefore of uncountable worth. In a lot of respects, individualism has a lot going for it, and the Bible recognizes it and even supports it. That being said, in the realm of ethics, and by extension in conversations about sin and guilt, this totally pervasive individualism often solidifies into an unflinching conviction. And that conviction is this. I can only be held responsible for the things that I have consciously chosen to do in my adult life. When I snapped at my spouse, I can be held responsible for that. I need to apologize, maybe wash the dishes or something. When I took a sick day in order to go to the beach, I can be held responsible for that. I'll be docked a personal day. If I commit a crime, I can be arrested, that sort of stuff. That kind of thing makes sense to us. But anything that happened without my explicit conscious knowledge, anything that happened in the past before I was a rational adult human, definitely anything that will happen in the future, there is no way that I can harbor any guilt or responsibility for that. And it's wrong to suggest that I could, and it would be barbaric to punish me for it. This is the air that we breathe. These are the cultural assumptions that we inherit as people born in the 21st century West, and especially in America. The problem is the Bible does not share these assumptions. The Bible doesn't have this mindset, doesn't come to these same conclusions. We have already seen one instance of this, right? The Exodus account is a good example of guilt being shared across time and across family lines. And there are other instances of this particular phenomenon of families seemingly being held responsible for the actions of one member of that family. And we can continue. A second example, which comes from our Old Testament reading for this morning, broadens this field of responsibility out even further. It spreads the concept of collective sin and guilt beyond family lines into whole countries and whole cultures. Daniel 9, uh, that's what we read today. In this chapter, Daniel, you know him, he's the lion's den guy. He is praying fervently to God. And his prayer sounds a lot like um, our United Methodist prayer of confession. I don't know if you noticed that, that we often pray in worship. We prayed it this past Sunday. His prayer begins, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. It's a, it's a passionate, emotional prayer that concludes with a series of bold requests in verse 19. Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act for your sake, O God, do not delay. You can just hear the, the desperation and the intensity and the, the genuineness of this, right? And what's weird about this prayer, at least from the perspective of a 21st century American, is that throughout the whole thing, Daniel is praying using the plural pronouns. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have turned away from your commands. And if you know the story of Daniel, you know that he was a moral superstar. He was a saint. He was willing to be thrown into the lion's den rather than betray the Lord. After all, he did not do anything wrong. So why does he pray using we, the plural pronoun? He seems to think, he seems to assume that he is implicated, that he is caught up in the cultural guilt, the collective sin and guilt of Israel, despite his own personal individualistic sterling record. 
One more example, and this is the biggest, the most far-reaching and the most expansive. It's from Romans 5. I think we've actually read Romans 5 a couple times in the past few weeks at Grifton UMC, and that's okay because it's a super important part of the Bible. In Romans 5, Paul is taking his just his best shot at explaining the significance of the cross and the resurrection. What did it accomplish? What did it do? He has a lot to say on the matter, but we're going to zero in on just Romans 5 verses 5, Romans 5 verses 18 through 19. Verse 18, 519, 518, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Did you catch that? Can you see it? Do you see the collective corporate understanding of sin and guilt that is underlying Paul's argument here? One trespass, the trespass of Adam, resulted in condemnation for all. Through the disobedience of the one, the many were made sinners. Paul sees the sin of humanity collectively. We are all implicated by it, tied into it. And in a sense, we all bear responsibility for it. Paul doesn't think of the cross in terms of Caleb's sin, Becca's iniquity, and Jonathan's trespasses. No, he's dealing with the collective, the weight of the brokenness and the guilt and the sin of everyone, of the whole world. This past Sunday was Palm Sunday, and uh, we read for today the story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And this story concludes one of my favorite lines of Jesus in the whole Bible. Uh, when, when the Pharisees get concerned about the rowdiness of the crowds, they're cheering beside the road as Jesus rides in on a donkey. They ask Jesus to hush the people, hush his disciples. And he responds, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And the text, it's important to notice, does not distinguish between the individuals in this crowd, right? It doesn't tell us Peter was thinking this while Judas, the betrayer, was thinking this. No, it's a collective here. It's a collective scene. All the people are excited to see what they believe will be a conquering king come to triumph over the enemies. And what's always tragic about reading this scene, we tend to think of it as a triumphant, happy scene. It's a parade, after all, of some kind. But it's really got this dark flip side to it because the corollary story to this scene where the crowd is cheering Jesus headed into Jerusalem. The corollary scene is when this exact same crowd, and the text makes it clear that this is the same group of people, the same crowd is going to chant, not Hosanna, Hosanna. They're going to chant, we want Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Give us the murderer. Jesus, you can crucify him. Crucify Jesus. Same crowd. And this is not a bunch of individuals. This is a mob. And I would argue, at least in a sense, is representing all of us. Our collective misunderstanding of who Jesus was, why he came, our collective outrage of being proven wrong, collective sin, collective guilt. By one man's trespass, the many fell. The many were made guilty. Now, at this point, sometimes people conclude, well, uh, the Bible is wrong about this. This is an ancient, primitive way of looking at things. Thank goodness that we have progressed. And even if you are a faithful Bible-believing Christian that's not just going to throw the book away because you don't love what I've been saying so far today, you might still be embarrassed or you might still be thinking, well, <laughs> I sure wish the Bible didn't have this perspective. It's very weird. Um, and this makes sense because of our cultural perspective, because of the lens that we get as our birthright, people who happen to be born into individualistic cultures such as ours. It feels intuitively like this is weird or wrong. But for the next several minutes, I'm going to try to convince you that that is not the case, that we should not throw out the Bible's understanding of sin and guilt as collective in favor of only our own individualistic models of uh, the our current situation in place. And I've got three reasons for this. The first reason is that it would be extremely culturally arrogant to come to that conclusion. 
As mentioned before, the vast majority of cultures in the world and other cultures that have existed prior to the modern age have had much more collective and corporate understandings of sin and guilt. Most cultures throughout time and space have recognized that we, uh, us people, you know, Caleb Hunt, for instance, is not a disconnected, totally autonomous individual whose actions occur in a vacuum. No, in many ways, I'm a product of a ton of different things. So many different people and communities have influenced me, have affected who I am and the things that I do. They've shaped me. My parents bear some responsibility for who I am and the way that I interact in the world, for better or for worse, and I will inevitably form my own children in a similar way. The towns that we grew up in, the churches that we attend, all of the communities that form us and shape us, uh, they bear some responsibility for who we end up being and who we are and the things that we do. The, the vast majority of cultures throughout history have understood this and recognized this, and it'd be very, very arrogant to simply conclude that they were all wrong until we 21st century Western people sort of figured it all out. The second reason is that there are often levels of guilt at play in situations of great harm and destruction. And I'll explain. Um, I hate to sometimes in some ways I hate to go to such an extreme example so quickly and jarringly, but it's the it's the best one uh, to help you understand what I'm trying to say. So my example is the Holocaust. Um, who should we hold morally responsible for the Holocaust? Whose fault was it? Maybe you would want to say, well, it was Hitler's fault. Um, but it's silly to think that one man is able to accomplish such terrible deeds at that large of a scale completely by itself, himself, right? That's just not possible. Um, rather, I think it's fair to say there are different levels of guilt. The guilt was spread out throughout different um, individuals and peoples and groups of people. We might have Hitler and maybe some of his closest confidants at the highest level of guilt. They knew what was happening, masterminded it, actively worked towards it. But what about, for instance, the guards outside of the concentration camps? There are stories um, of after the liberation of these camps where the, where the guards on the walls did not know everything that was going on inside. They weren't, they weren't shown or weren't told. And when, they, when the camps were liberated and they, they saw just how terrible it was in there, the piles of the bodies, they, they were physically ill right? So definitely not innocent, maybe not at the same level of guilt as Hitler, but, but implicated and tied into the whole situation. What about just the average German citizen who, you know, just wasn't really into politics, just kind of was going along his own business, but noticed his Jewish neighbors were disappearing day by day and just didn't do anything, didn't say anything. It's hard to say that he or she would be in the clear, isn't it? There's a collective guilt, a corporate sin at play here. Germany as a culture and as a country, as a system, committed terrible, terrible crimes, and everyone participating in that system was implicated at one level or another, regardless of how much they consciously decided to do. The third reason, collective guilt is a thing because systemic sin is a thing. Now, systemic sin, that's another more abstract, difficult concept, so stick with me. We've already hinted at it, hinted at it in the previous example. Um, I would roughly define systemic sin as when the cause of harm and justice and suffering cannot be definitively and finally traced to an individual, but rather is the result of a system, of a structure in which individuals participate. Um, we just had a very dramatic and intense example of the Holocaust. Let's look at something a little bit more concrete, a little bit closer to home, a little bit closer to our own lived experience. I got this next example from Tim Keller, by the way, from a talk that he gave on this subject. You can find it online if you'd like to. Tim Keller discusses systematic sin or something like that. You'll be able to find it. Um, 
So Tim Keller tells the story of this car dealership that his friend owned in Virginia, and it was a used car dealership. And so, of course, as a used car dealership, there's a a fair amount of haggling went on there, bartering. And this was actually built into the business model, right? Salesmen and saleswomen at the dealership would go into a sale with a price range in their head that was set by management. You know, I can sell this Prius from anywhere from $10,000 to $15,000. I'm going to start at $15,000. If the customer is good at haggling, then I can go down as low as $10,000. And this was standard practice. But then one year, the company did a deep demographic analysis on their sales to see what kind of buyer generally paid what rate. And what they found was that overwhelmingly, white men, like myself, who who they on average had the highest net worth in the community, had the most money in the community, they ended up paying less for their cars than any other demographic on average, white men. Black women, on the other hand, who on average had the lowest net worth of anyone else in the community, they ended up paying the most to the extent that the car payments of black women were actually subsidizing the rates that the white men were paying in order to make the business model work. Now, uh, I'm sure that we could come up with a variety of hypothetical explanations for why this result ended up coming about, but we're not going to speculate on that because I honestly don't believe it is that important. Uh, the, The outcome, the result was harmful. And it was unjust. As a result of this practice, the poorest and the most vulnerable members in the community were subsidizing the car payments of the wealthiest and the most powerful. And we can see the same sort of phenomenon of levels of guilt, right? How a variety of individuals are caught up in this corporate collective guilt in this situation, even though there's nobody that we could just point to and say, this is Fred's fault. Um, You know, Tim Keller's friend, the owner of the car dealership, might have the highest level of culpability, right? He has the most knowledge of how his business runs day to day. What about the salespeople? They might not consciously realize or intend to charge black women more on average than any other customers, but they might have an inkling. They might have a sense of which customers are going to push them, which they might yield to, which won't. But the real important question is if you are the owner of the car dealership, how do you react to this discovery? Um, because you theoretically, you could just conclude that since no individual person is in the wrong, no one is consciously attempting to harm black women in the community. You could conclude that there simply is not a problem here. In fact, this is great. Uh, we're we're making money. Uh, the business is good. I, I firmly believe that would be an unbiblical, even sinful response because the Bible recognizes sin beyond the conscious choices of individual people. It recognizes brokenness and harm that is inherited, that is the result of broader systems and cultures. And I think that this is actually a really good thing. I think that it's actually very valuable and helps us think about the sin and the suffering that we see in the world around us. Uh, for the record, Tim Keller's friend, the owner of the, of the dealership, was a committed Christian man. And after discovering this about his company, he totally revamped the sales process. He started from scratch with the goal of erasing this disparity. So according to the Bible, sin and guilt is collective. It's corporate. It is spread out across families and cultures, even all of humanity. In some ways, this is extremely depressing. Uh, In some ways, this is the most Lenten moment of all, the lowest point. Um, Because, you know, I've been trying my best to deal with my own issues and my own wrongdoings, my own sin, trespasses, and iniquities, and that already seemed difficult enough. But if I'm on the hook for everything my family has done, everything my culture has done, if I'm on the hook for all of the messed up actions of humanity, then, I mean, this is hopeless. What does sanctification even mean then? Well, First of all, thank goodness Easter is next week, right? That's coming. Amen. Amen. Uh, But I want to give you all a glimpse at the good news just here and now, right? And 
we're going to take a look. We're going to end with three, three quick reasons why all is not lost. And, and these are going to go kind of quick and fast. So, so pay attention. First of all is I don't think we're as helpless here as we sometimes think. Uh, we have a bit more agency and responsibility than we think. Once you understand and accept that you can be and are implicated in sin and suffering beyond your own individual choices and intentions, that uh, systemic sin is a real thing. You, you can start to see it. Um, you can start to see how systems within cultures and societies hurt certain people. And we should try to be sensitive to it, try to be aware of it, educate ourselves, ask questions, pay attention. And when we discover damage being done, like Tim Keller's car dealership friend, then we need to act. We need to work towards a more equitable and just society. Uh, don't make excuses. I personally didn't mean to do, any throng, do anything wrong because that, that's, that's not the point. It's not the conversation we're having today. Secondly, we can and we should collectively confess our sins to God. Daniel prayed for forgiveness on behalf of all of Israel, even though he personally had not turned his back on God. He knew that he was intertwined. He was caught up in the misdeeds of his people, and we should do the same. Uh, we did do the same at Grifton Church this past week. Um, we prayed the prayer of confession in the United Methodist Hymnal, and that prayer contains all plural pronouns because we are confessing on behalf of all of God's people, the entire church spreading throughout history. We are confessing the sins of our spiritual fathers and our spiritual children, even to the third and to the fourth generation, because we are not totally disconnected from them. We are all tied together. Finally, third and finally, we need to trust in the gospel, trust in the good news, the redemption and reconciliation of Jesus, because the good news is that although God believes in collective corporate guilt, he also believes in collective redemption. Let's return and finish today by reading Romans 5 verses 18 and 19 one more time. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one act of righteousness resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.